Welcome to Rising to the Top Lessons in Leadership, brought to you by Columbia University. This is a podcast where we interview senior industry leaders who share the secrets of their success and reveal pivotal moments that impacted their career path. Come listen as they shed light on obstacles they overcame, as well as wins they achieved. My name is Paul Maniachi from the Career Design Lab, and I will be your host for today's discussion with Sean Brecker. You have to take risk, you know, and you can't control, like I'm a little bit of a control freak, because I think you you can't control everything in your life. And sometimes it's okay to just explore and see where that exploration takes you. Sean is the CFO of Headspace Health, where he oversees all financial and commercial matters, including managing the financial growth of the company. He was previously CFO of Headspace where he led a series of funding rounds resulting in a total of $168 million. Prior to joining Headspace, Sean had a 15-year career as a trader and originator at large investment banks such as J.P. Morgan, Lehman Brothers, and Citigroup in numerous locations including New York, London, and Singapore. Sean also currently serves as a board member at Coach Art, a transformative arts and athletics community for families impacted by childhood chronic illnesses. He has an MBA in finance from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and a BA in mathematics and economics from Wesleyan University. Thanks so much for being with us here today, Sean. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Paul. It's my pleasure. Sean, we wanted to to have a conversation around what your work is as the CFO at Headspace Health and, and also learn a little bit more about the wellness space. Uh, one of the things that's, that's unique about our student population at, at Columbia University in the School of Professional Studies is that we have a very large international student population. I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about what your experience is as it relates to your international experience, uh, having gone to, to school in in London, such as such as I did, and then also having worked in in Singapore, has your international experience impacted you in any way in your work here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So, I guess just you know, just for background, I am American. Uh, I'm about to turn forty eight years old, and I've spent twenty. Uh, I'm trying to do the math. I think I've spent twenty seven years outside of the United States. So I spent the vast majority of my childhood in the UK um, attending, you know, uh, an American school in, in the UK, which, you know, Paul, I know you uh, attended as well. Um, I went to the States, really the first time I lived in the States as an, as an adult was for college and then to work in New York after college. And then, you know, a couple of years of business school. And then I went, you know, back international. I spent four years in London and then another uh, seven years in Singapore. And it was just the most incredible experience, both from a personal perspective, you know, living overseas has just been incredibly gratifying and fulfilling. And I think the, you know, learning how to adapt um, culturally and how to have uh, an appreciation of different cultures and kind of having the travel bug, which I think most people get bitten by when they live, you know, overseas. I mean, that's just personally has been awesome and, and has, you know, I, I would like to think sort of shape me into being a, um, a quote unquote, quote, global citizen. 
But I think that, you know, adaptability is just as important in the business world. So being in different environments, you know, whether it's different countries, different cultures, I think it, there's it, um, just an underlying uh, teaching around adaptability that is incredibly valuable in the business world. Not to mention that in this day and age, you know, most businesses, certainly ours, you know, where we're trying to tackle the mental health crisis, that crisis is not unique to the United States. And so we very much have a global view on the business opportunity in front of us. I think that's true of most industries and most verticals. So, so I think having that experience is really helpful, you know, just learning how to operate in other countries. And I think there's a lot of cultural nuance that is important to understand in business. So, you know, as an example, growing up in London, spending so much time in the UK, you understand that, you know, English culture is not the same as American culture. And English language is not the same as American English, you know? And I think when we were, for instance, looking to expand internationally and translate our product way back in 2016, I think it was. Uh, and we started with Germany and France as the first kind of countries and German and French as the first languages that we translated the product into. Just understanding that there is cultural nuance between the UK and America is very applicable to you know, to try and expand in, in France and Germany. I think in not having that uh, understanding might lead one to think, well, all we need to do is just translate the products, you know, from English to French. But even just a translation of the words or using voiceover actors to um, translate the product from English to French is not sufficient. Like you need to really understand the cultural nuances of um, the French or of living in France to, you know, understand what's going to resonate in the product. You need to alter the product beyond just translation. So I think there's some real um, sort of tangible things that, you know, I learned by growing up overseas. I, I have been able to apply to business, not to mention, again, just the sort of backdrop of adaptability. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, Sean, I'd, I'd like to learn a little bit about about your career, talk about your career, and if there was a, a pivotal moment in your career that, that kind of set you in motion. I studied math as an undergrad. I went into um, investment banking, so I started at J.P. Morgan um, right after undergrad, and I was always on the market side, so I was you know really um, interested in capital markets and understanding how markets work and I love the energy of, of working on trading floors. And so I did that for 15 years with a two-year stint in between to go to business school. And so, you know, I, like I said, I started my career in New York on the fixed income trading floor at JP Morgan. Then I went to business school. After business school, I resumed my career at Lehman Brothers uh, in London, again, uh, on the trading floor, this time trading derivatives. And after doing that for a few years, um, I was asked by uh, one of my bosses to go replicate our success in Asia and to go build a trading franchise in Singapore, which is what I did in 2007. And it wasn't really until 2014 that I felt like, you know, the learning curve had flattened out. I was starting to get a little bit bored of, you know, trading within large banks. And I also at that 
time, you know, by that, by that point, my wife and I had had three kids that were all born in Singapore and, you know, we just missed being back in the States and being close to family. So we made it, you know, partially a personal decision to move back to the States, but also sort of professional decision to um, leave banking and to try and figure out, you know, what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I say that sort of half joking, but careers are long these days. And so 15 years sounds like a long time, but you're still sort of in the first, you know, third of your uh, career um, in this day and age. So my plan was to take a year off and try and figure out what I wanted to do. We moved back to the States, you know, moving here to Los Angeles. Um, And it was about three weeks into that year that I was recruited to Headspace. I was recruited by one of the founders who was an old friend of mine, you know, when I lived in the UK and Headspace at the time was a tiny company. It was, you know, 10 people, a few hundred thousand dollars of revenue. And, and, you know, my friend who was one of the founders and his co-founder had effectively just bootstrapped the company um, to, to that scale, but it was, it was tiny. And so at the time, I remember thinking, you know, when they were saying, hey, we really need someone that's analytical and come and help us. And I remember thinking like, oh, I'll help them just to keep my brain sharp for a few months. But this is probably not for me and I'm probably not for them. Like I didn't have any startup experience. I had never been an operator before. But yeah, fast forward, you know, nine years later and, and I'm still here and we've scaled the business, you know, immensely. And it's been um, it's been a the ride of a lifetime. But I would say that was a major inflection point because it took me, you know, out of banking and into, you know, being an operator at a tech enabled business. I'm so grateful because I've learned so much over the last uh, nine years. It is just immensely applicable. Um, So yeah, I'd say that would have to be the biggest uh, inflection point in my career. And and what gave you the I guess the courage to to take that risk and try something so different was it was some of it knowing that you had this relationship with with your friend who was the the co-founder that like he, in some ways he wouldn't lead you astray and you were looking for a new challenge yeah it's a, it, it's a great question because it, it that decision was very out of character for me you know I'm a planner I am a uh, I like to know exactly where I'm going and I like to you know plan everything out. I like to sort of be in command of where my career is going. And this was an example, the one example I would say in my entire career where I didn't have it planned out. I just, you know, at the time I did it more because I thought, you know, well, I'm taking this year off and I may as well help a few hours here and there and, you know, just to get educated. I mean, I, I'd like to think I have a a um, sort of high degree of sort of intellectual curiosity and uh, beginner's minds. And, and so I think that's what sort of prompted me to say, yeah, I'll, you know, I'll help out for a little bit and let's just see where it goes. Um, and then that very quickly became, you know, we need you full time. And then we were off to the races. So I think the, I'm not sure what the lesson is, but I think the lesson is you have to take risk, you know, and you can't control, like I'm a little bit of a control freak. And I think you, you can't control everything in your life. And sometimes it's okay to just explore and see where that exploration takes you. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting, especially as you mentioned, it's not part of your, you know, your day-to-day character. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the idea of just like not turning down an, an opportunity. 
can you talk about what that transition was like for you? So you, you had been working for 15 years in, in the financial area, and now all of a sudden you're working in a, in a tech startup, which was really small. And like you said, uh, it was, they're, they're just starting to figure things out. What was that like? Was, was there a culture shock? Yeah, I would say massive culture shock. I mean, you couldn't pick two more different environments than, you know, the trading floors of sort of, you know, top tier bulge bracket investment banks. And then a startup that was literally in the, not quite the garage, but in a, in a sort of proverbial tiny house in, you know, Venice Beach, California. You know, I went from an environment in, in the banks, it was obviously a large company, public company, tens, or the last place I worked at was City, which, which actually at the time had, I think, 200,000 employees. So hundreds of thousands of employees, very structured, just even down to, you know, on the trading floor, we wore suits and ties, even in Singapore, you know, despite the climate, going to the startup where, you know, everyone was in shorts and t-shirts and flip-flops and people would duck out at lunch to go surf. And, you know, it was just culturally wildly different, but just as brilliant kind of people, you know, working there and folks that, you know, I could really, um, really learn from. So, so yeah, huge cultural difference, took a lot of sort of learning how to adapt to that culture. Cause I'd only known, you know, the culture of these large kind of investment banks. Oh, Sean, I was hoping that you could talk about some of the, the transferable skills that, that you brought with you into Headspace. And then I'd love to learn more about your role as the, as the CFO at Headspace Health. My role at Headspace as CFO of Headspace Health, well, my mandate is a little broader than just um, the finance function. So in addition to finance and accounting, I'm also responsible for um, legal. So our general counsel reports into me. I'm responsible for data science, uh, business intelligence, and um, data analytics. I'm responsible for corporate development, revenue cycle management, and billing. And then, you know, we don't have a formal risk function, but I, I wear the, you know, the hat responsible for just risk across the organization. And I'd say at a really high level, I mean, you know, obviously I think my role is much more multifaceted to this, but if I had to make it pithy in one sentence or two sentences, it's, you know, make sure we don't run out of money and help the rest of the organization make capital allocation decisions. Because, you know, we have, like most companies, finite capital. We have a series of bets that we're going to make every year. And, you know, I think a, a large part of the role is how do you work with your partners across the org to size those bets and to ensure that we're making the smartest best possible. And I think that last piece is, you know, there's a lot of skill that I learned as a trader, just thinking about capital allocation, like, you know, at its core, um, that is one of the key aspects of um, trading and, and managing risk in banks or, you know, mutual funds or hedge funds or, um, or any other kind of similar business. So I do think that that element, while very different in terms of the sort of technology that we use and the uh, the way that we deploy capital and the way that we sort of manage those bets, the, the core kind of skill set around capital allocation is, I think, extremely transferable. Um, so yeah, so that's that's how I think about my role. Can you talk a little bit about the the differentiation between 
Headspace, as, as most people know, the, the meditation app, and, and Headspace Health. Headspace Health is the name of um, the company that we formed in late 2021 when we brought two companies together in a, in a, in a pretty significant merger. One of those companies was Headspace. So that was the sort of legacy company that I worked at. And the other company was called Ginger. And, you know, what Headspace was known as, and even to some degree today, I think is known as, is a meditation app. In reality, I would say Headspace is a bit broader than that. It is a mental wellness app. You know, there's tons of content in the product that is not related to meditation, that's related to sleep or focus or uh, sort of inspirational ways to start your day, whether it's our wake up content, et cetera. So think about it really as a sort of mental wellness app. Ginger was and is um, more of, I would say, a healthcare product around true mental health care. So Ginger is an on-demand mental health platform that provides behavioral health coaching. So human powered behavioral health coaching, therapy, and psychiatry, all on demand and all virtually not in person. And so, you know, by bringing these two uh, products and companies together, as we did in late 2021, um, we have created the most comprehensive mental health platform out there with everything from wellness, i.e. the legacy headspace business, all the way to psychiatry and, you know, everything in between, uh, powered by, you know, what we would like to think of as an iconic consumer brand. Um, so that's, you know, really what we've done in bringing these two companies together. And uh, we named the resultant company Headspace Health. So uh, I just wanted to, to switch gears for a second. You know, all of us have been impacted by, by the pandemic that we're, that we're currently living through. It seems like Headspace was ahead of the curve with this idea of mental wellness and, and mental health. Headspace was founded by these two gentlemen, you know, one of whom was a former Tibetan Buddhist monk and one of whom um, was, you know, came from the advertising industry and they had connected, you know, at this point now about 15 years ago when Rich, you know, the gentleman that came from the advertising agency had had a, just a pretty significant burnout. I think before people really understood what burnout was and, was introduced to Andy, who's the former Tibetan Buddhist monk through a mutual friends and started to see him um, to get sort of trained in mindfulness as a way to deal with the crippling anxiety that, you know, Richard develops part of his burnout and keep in mind, this was sort of the late, you know, two thousands, right. So sort of 2008 timeframe, you know, they asked the question of why is it that folks, spend a lot of time thinking about their physical health, right? Everyone uh, works out, they think about what they eat, they brush their teeth, they get their skin checked, but you know, no one is, is really thinking proactively around mental health. And um, at the end of the day, if your brain is not healthy, it's hard to be healthy in the physical realm too. And so I think they were obsessed very early on with this notion of proactively being, you know, taking care of our mental health in the same way that we do our, our physical health, right? Similar to brushing our teeth. We all get up in the morning and brush our teeth, not because we have a toothache, but because we want to prevent a toothache. 
right? And so um, I think they were onto that very early. And in those early days, you know, when I joined in early 2014, it didn't even occur to me to meditate or to think about my mental health or to think about mindfulness. And I think I had many of the same stereotypes that ironically we've worked so hard to break down over the last decade. And, and, you know, I, we obviously can't take all the credit, but I would like to think that we've made some small contribution to the sort of breaking down of the stigma associated with mental health. It's just night and day where we are today in 2023 versus where we were a decade ago. And so I think we've been the, you know, we've helped to sort of drive some of that change. And we've also been the beneficiary of that change. I mean, 10 years ago, athletes and politicians and actors uh, and other sort of influencers were not talking about mental health. It was very taboo. And today you see countless examples of of you know influencers and just everyday people talking about their mental health. You know, I think fundamentally that is a really healthy thing for society. I think the pandemic just really accelerated that, right? I think when the pandemic hit, it became there was even more permission to say, "Hey, I'm really struggling in this crazy world that we're now living in where people are locked locked down and kids can't go to school and you're terrified that you know you, if you go to the grocery store you may come back with a with a virus that's going to kill you you know so i think one of the you know silver linings of the pandemic is it just it gave more license for folks to say hey i'm not okay and i need to do something about it um and we certainly saw that you know with our members we saw that with our corporate clients and our b2b business um and i think that's been fundamentally a healthy change we've been talking about wellness like kind of with a with a capital w and and i'd like to to make it a little more personal and and ask you as as someone with a family and and i imagine a very demanding job as well how do you practice self-care for yourself yeah i think that's that's a great question and i was i will say look i am not the perfect person at this so i'm always striving to get better but there are um to, to me, I think it's, you know, routines are really important. So, you know, I try and um, stick to a workout routine and I try and uh, be fairly disciplined about that. And when I fall off of that or out of that routine, like for instance, if I'm traveling, I find it really hard to stick to a routine, not just because you don't have the right equipment, but just schedules are crazy. You might be jet lagged, et cetera. I can really feel difference not just in my body but just mentally i feel foggy i don't feel as crisp and as sharp you know i think it's it's important to have the discipline to know when you need to tap out when you need to focus on yourself and it's it's okay to um to say that so there's there's plenty of times where i'll tell you know my colleagues on the executive team hey i need to be offline on friday because i just need a mental break or i need to spend the day with my kid, you know, at his basketball game. And, you know, I'm still getting all my work done. I'm just doing it at, you know, different times. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's important just to recognize that if you are not taking care of yourself, if you are mentally burned out, it's really hard to be good at your career. It's just fundamentally hard to to do a good job. So that, you know, you need the balance. Um, and I think you need to be somewhat 
sort of unapologetic about seeking that balance. Yeah, that's great. I like that idea of, of telling people that you just need a minute. Yeah. Maybe we need to schedule some time for you to go surfing. <laughs> well, I've tried to surf a few times and I'm really not a, a very good surfer, but um, as my kids will tell you, but I'm always willing to give it a go. And I love being on a boogie board, which is sort of like the, uh, I feel like it's sort of like the old, the old guy version of surfing, which just suits me perfectly. I noticed that you work as a board member at CoChart, and and I wanted to I wanted to learn a little bit more about your involvement there and ab- about the organization that you support. Yeah, well, thanks for asking. And first of all, I'd love to give a plug for CoChart because it's just the most wonderful organization. So so CoChart has been around for over twenty years and um, started originally in uh, Los Angeles and expanded to San Francisco, and now we're nationwide. And effectively. What CoachArt does is it provides arts and athletics programming to um, kids who have chronic illness and to their families. And so the concept here is, you know, if you have a kid in a family that is undergoing chemo treatment for cancer, it's obviously extremely disruptive on the family unit. And it's difficult for many of those kids to keep up with school once they leave the hospital, let alone extracurricular activities around, you know, arts and athletics. And oftentimes the siblings are impacted too um, because the parents are sort of rightly, you know, devoting most of their time to taking care of the sick kid. And so what CoachArt does is through an amazing network of volunteers that we call coaches, um, it effectively brings that arts and athletics programming into the household. Um, you know, effectively, if the if the sick kid can't get to, you know, soccer practice, and we're going to bring soccer practice to the sick kid and and to his or her siblings, it's extremely well run. We have an amazing um, executive director who has an incredible team running it. We launched about a year, maybe a little over a year ago, nationwide through a you know, there's an app, um, or you can go on the website if folks have any. Uh, interest in volunteering as coaches, or if they want to donate, you know, there's plenty of different ways to get involved. Um, And yeah, we're now, you know, providing matches between coaches and our students um, all across the country. And it's just been, you know, I've been on the board for about five years now, I think five or six years. Um, I've been involved um, with it really going back to when I first joined Headspace and yeah, it's just been an absolute honor and a privilege to um, to participate. What type of advice would you give our current students about how they can make the most of their time while they're at, at Columbia? Whether it's something that you did when you were a student or even looking back at, at your career, is there anything that really stands out to you that you would have told younger Sean? Two aspects that stand out, one of which I think I did well, and one of which I think I probably didn't do very well. To me, those two aspects are sort of the first is don't take the network for granted. Like my guess is these students at SPS are surrounded by, you know, other brilliant, incredible people. And so make the most of that network that, you know, you are building, foster close relationships, stay in touch with people, offer to help, you know, when someone needs help, and I'm sure they'll return the favor when you need help. You know, I had the privilege of, um, going to business school at Wharton, my class 
I remember, you know, my class, which was a class 2003, was 757 people. And to this day, you know, 20, I'm about to go back in May for my 20 year reunion, several hundred, maybe three or 400 of those folks are on a massive text thread together and constantly supporting each other, making introductions, providing emotional support when things go wrong in life, celebrating when things go right in life. Um, and I just think the value of that network is immeasurable. So, so, you know, recognize that yes, while you're there to learn and to study and to get good grades, um, you know, don't neglect building relationships and um, building the network. So that's the first thing. And I think, you know, I would grade myself pretty well around my time at Wharton and in my undergrad um, studies around, around that network. I think the part that I maybe wouldn't grade myself so well is I'd say more so at Wharton than an undergrad, you know, cause I went to a liberal arts school undergrad where you're actively encouraged to just take courses for the sake of intellectual curiosity, even if, you know, you know that they're not going to have um, any or much sort of applied um, relevance to, you know, your chosen career path. So, you know, when I was in undergrad studying, you know, West African dance, I knew that that was unlikely to have much practical uh, impact on sort of the technical training of me as a, you know, junior trader working at JP Morgan. Um, I think when you're at a, a master's level, the temptation can often be, you know, I'm only going to take classes that I know are going to be very relevant to the career path that I want to go into. And I certainly was guilty of the same thing, you know, at, at Wharton. And I think the good thing about um, business school is, you know, effectively there's one year of sort of, you have to take core, you know, you have to study all this stuff that regardless of whether you're going to specialize in an area or not, and then second year you, you tend to do more electives. I think I kind of didn't give as much effort to the stuff that I felt was not going to be as relevant. So, you know, financial statement analysis, I was thinking, oh, that's not going to be super relevant to being an interest rate derivatives trader. Um, but I wish I paid more attention to those classes or I was kind of more engaged because you never know where your career is going to go, you know? And, and like I said, careers are really long. Where you may end up next year, you may be convinced that that's what you want to do for the rest of your life. And in reality, that might change five years or 10 years or 20 years from now. So, you know, pay attention and be engaged around all of your classes. That's, that's my advice. And I feel like, you know, sometimes it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for that, Sean. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to, to share your, your story and your knowledge with our, our students at the school of professional studies at Columbia, as well as our alumni. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been, uh, it's been great being here. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Rising to the Top Lessons in Leadership. For more episodes, subscribe on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. To get more information and tips on how you can advance your career, visit Columbia University's Career Design Lab at careerdesignlab.sps.columbia.edu. Thanks again to today's guest, Sean Brecker of Headspace Health, and to our editor, Peter Shea, of the School of Professional Studies media team.